Hey, thanks so much for listening to this message. My name is Jason, and I'm one of the ministers here at the Madison Church of Christ. It's our hope and prayer that the teaching from God's Word you hear today will bless your life and draw you closer to Him. If you're ever in the Madison, Alabama area, we'd love for you to worship with us on Sundays at 8.30 or 10.30 a.m. If you have any other questions about the Bible or want to know more about the Madison Church, find us at madisonchurch.org. Be sure to also check out our Bible study podcast, Madison Church of Christ Bible Studies. Thanks again for stopping by. I'm truly grateful for the opportunity to be here, and I'm humbled and honored. Uh, there are several reasons for this. <clears throat> Some of you may know Paul Torrance. Paul Torrance, back in the days of Noah, was my speech teacher, mine and Peggy's. Uh, Paul drilled it in our head that you should not say pride, you're ever proud of anything. Um, he said the Bible never used the word pride in a good way. Uh, I'm still, after all those years, trying to get over that. Uh, he says we should be grateful. Uh, years later he was my student and he still argued that. And then years later he was a colleague of mine and he still still uh, uh, said that. Uh, I am grateful, I want to say proud to be here because uh, uh, for several things. Uh, one of the blessings of being an old professor <laughs> is that you get to see and interact with your students. It's a blessing to have Jason, Brandon, and Andrew uh, as students of mine, and I learned a lot from them. Uh, when Andrew said he wanted to do that, I was excited. I know the theory. I did the same thing when I was a student. You did not choose a topic that you thought your professor did not you knew about. You tried to pick one he didn't know about. And uh, but from the professor's perspective, when somebody like Andrew says I'm going to do something on the Psalms and prayer, I got excited because beginning to work on that book, I might learn something. And I tell students that it took me a long time, but I learned that I, since I love to go to school, uh, I can go a lot cheaper on the teacher side of the desk than I can go paying tuition. And so it's truly grateful. I'm grateful to be here. I want to say proud. Sorry, Paul. I'm grateful to be here and to heard so much about the Madison Church. This is our first time being here, and I'm extremely grateful when I was attacked by Ronnie Misseldine as I was about to come up here. I haven't seen Ronnie in several years, and he and Sandra, and I'm so glad to see them. Ronnie and I go back a long time doing mission work together, and even before that in the Ukraine in the 90s. I'm really thankful, too to participate and to be here and to share something. And I'm going to stick close to my notes. Peggy told Brandon and Andrew I'm a walker, and I am, but this topic means so much to me. If I get away from my notes, we might never get out of here. Because when I was preaching, when I preached on something that bothered me, I found out it bothered other people, but guess what? They had not mentioned it. And so the struggle that I had, this is a needed topic, and you're, you're to be... Uh, commended uh, for your wanting to study this, and I've even learned something today. I've got to revise my book because I said there are no lament songs in our songbooks, and Brandon found one. 
And so we're singing it. Now I've got to say there's hardly none. The thing is, when you look at the Psalms, 150 Psalms, 75 of them are complaints. But I've even been at places where people would say you should never complain to God. You should never tell him exactly how you feel. Uh, somehow they think God's going to get angry about that. And you shouldn't say those things. And I actually heard one lady say one time, it doesn't matter how bad it is, you should praise God and keep praising it until you feel better. And uh, I, I was struggling with some things then, and I, I, I just did not understand what she was talking about. So it is a very needed subject. And I want to say something. Prayer is the, at the time that our most intimate time with God. I don't think we realize that. Particularly individual prayer. It's our most intimate time. And it's a blessing that we have that... Many religions don't have, even the Old Testament, you had to go through the priest, but we got the priesthood of believers, and Jesus is our high priest, and you can go one-on-one -on -one with God. But I think many people are somewhere where I was and don't know it, or maybe they do know it, where uh, I had a crisis of prayer, a prayer life. I was preaching in 1979, 77, 79, and, and uh, I wrote a Get ready for this. I about went crazy. I wrote a, for a brother, Rex Turner Sr. at Alabama Christian School of Religion. Predestination and the foreknowledge of God is perceived by Church of Christ preachers, Bible teachers, and Christian colleges and preacher training schools in the United States of America. So what do we believe about predestination and the foreknowledge of God? I about went crazy with that. I about drove my wife crazy and everybody else crazy about it. But when I got through with it, the net result was, and my joke is, I, I had postpartum depression because I delivered that baby and nobody was interested. <laughs> but but I, I looked deep in myself and I realized that my prayer life stunk. And I didn't know why. I didn't understand why. And so I had a crisis of prayer life. And I struggled. And uh, I... You know, we, we flip it, and I don't mean flip it, but we say God knows everything, and we'll get to that in a moment. But we don't think about how that affects our prayer life. If he knows everything, he knows what you prayed, and he knows the result of that prayer, so why do you pray? But you see, these kind of questions people don't like to ask in Bible classes. <laughs> but I'm an extrovert, probably the most extroverted extrovert you've ever seen. Peggy tells me, you don't have to tell everything you know all the time. Uh, and so I think, well, if i got this question, other people have, so I'll ask it. And, and so uh, I started asking things like that, and I struggled with them. Nobody, sometimes they didn't like me asking them, and sometimes they, they had not thought about it either. Why pray at all if God knows everything? And should I tell God exactly how he feels? The ironic thing when I'm teaching a class sometimes and I say that and people say God knows everything but you shouldn't complain to God and then I, they'll, they'll go through and they'll think, they'll say, well, God knows how we feel, doesn't he? And I say, yeah, so why are you saying you shouldn't complain if he already knows according to your theological belief that he knows you're complaining? <laughs> and so the problem is we need to reexamine our relationship with God and I had to. Uh, so we're told to praise God and not complain. 
And we go to 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul talks about ancient Israel and their complaints and their sin, and we say we shouldn't do that. But we forget that God, Paul is talking about ancient Israel and they were in a state of rebellion. That's a little different than the psalmist complaining about their situation to God. Uh, so, in 1984, I'm sitting in a psalms class in my Ph.D. program, and the professor, who was very liberal, but he was a Calvinist, I think, if he even believed part of those terms, uh, very, very liberal, he started reading from John Calvin's Institutes. And if anybody knew the Institutes, I did. I'd, I'd been in boss, in, 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 baptized in those things to write that thesis. I had, I had Reformed theologians ask me how long I'd been a Calvinist. <laughs> and so I knew that stuff. <clears throat> and he got through reading what Calvin said about prayer, and then he started reading some of the Psalms, and he said very sarcastically, the psalmist would look at John Calvin and say, Mr. Calvin, Boy, you understand God. I don't understand God. I have to tell God how I feel, and I have to argue with him. Let me show you what he was saying. Uh, well, let me ask some questions first. Some of these questions, I told you a couple of them I asked, but there were a lot more, and perhaps you've asked them or heard them ask. Let's get down to the basics. Why do we do what we do? What is prayer? Is it communication? And is it two-way communication? By that, do we expect God to answer us? Why do we do it? Is it a conversation between an individual privately and God? Or as we've prayed here today, if you pray publicly, it, it, there's a vertical aspect and there's an, ed, there's an edification aspect, much like preaching. So it's a conversation between God and individuals. And if we're so, how does our prayers help us? And when we pray, does God really listen? And how do we imagine God when we pray to him? How do we think of it? What you think of God determines how you pray. If you have a certain belief about God and think of him in a certain way, you may ask certain things of God that someone else who doesn't have that impression of God would not ask. Our prayers may differ that way. Is it okay to express our feelings? Have you ever asked why did this happen? Is it okay to bargain with God? I've heard people say you shouldn't bargain with God. Hannah did. You give me a son and I'll give him back to you. Jacob did. He's fleeing from Esau, and he says, you do one, two, three, four, five, and I'll give you a tenth. He was a good bargainer. And I think it may be that sometimes we say you shouldn't bargain with God because we might be afraid God will take that bet, and then we have to live up to it. It may be more of a reflection to us than others. Uh, do we try when we pray to influence God to do what we think's best? And is it really acceptable to, play, to complain to God? I think it shows in our psalm books, though we sang a lament psalm today, that we hardly have any, and I've been saying none, we don't have any complaint psalms, songs in our psalm books. And yet, psalms have at least 
And so what part does God play in our prayers? Do you pray and look for answers? And when you look for answers, when, where, and how does God answer them? Can you look at things in your life and say, I prayed for this on this date, and at this time, I could, God answered that. Or do we just pray because you're supposed to pray? And so how do we expect God to answer our prayers? Should we look for events in our lives? I personally do now. I know that I can never convince you of some of those events, but I'll go to my grave saying, I prayed this, and then God answered here. And praise the Lord for answering here. Then I prayed other times, and God answered, and I said, I don't like this answer, God. <laughs> I've got a cartoon. I wish I could have put it in the book. It shows a little girl praying. She's down on her knees, be like little children. She's at her bed. She's saying her nightly prayers. And she says, now I want to tell you some things I'm not thankful for. Have you ever felt like the little girl? Is it wrong to feel that way? I think a lot of these questions, I'm an extrovert, I think a lot of these questions people in Bible classes want to ask, but they're afraid that somebody will think they have bad faith. They're afraid that somebody will push it off. But these are the questions that need to be asked, and they're not new questions. You look to Luke 11, 1, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And so the, the model prayer came, came out. Jesus taught, gave them that model prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's the model prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17. But they wanted to know how, he wanted to know how to pray, so he thought he was missing something. He thought he was lacking something. I need to put some, I need to drive a nail down here. If you're honest with yourself, I bet you every one of you believes that you're not good prayers. I feel that way now. There's no place that we ever reach perfection in our prayer life. You may find a person that you think is a prayer par excellence, the greatest prayer in the world. If you get that person cornered and ask them, they'll say, I don't pray very well. We don't reach perfection in our prayer life. It's a process. And as we grow deeper in the faith, we get better at it. But in humility, we realize we haven't reached perfection. So back to Calvin. Why would Calvin write about prayer? Well, because Calvin believed in such a predestination did you know that he predetermined the words I'm speaking right now according to Calvin? God, the words, I, even though I wrote them and I thought about them, God had predestined, I would say, those words right now. And he predestined that you would be here and you're having the thoughts you're having. He locked the world into a, a lockstep system. And so he anticipated that if anybody believed that, that the prayers were even produced came from God, somebody would say, well, why pray? So Calvin gave six reasons for prayer. And the six reasons are prayer creates zeal in us. It increases our love for God. Watch how they're all focused on the prayer. Prayer awakens honorable desires and kills in us dishonorable desires, making more spiritual. 
Prayer should make you grateful for what God's done for you. Prayers cause us to meditate on God's kindness. Prayers cause us to acknowledge answered prayers, which is interesting to me. He's praying a prayer of thanks, which looks back to a prayer he prayed, and all of that's been predestined anyway. Prayer establishes faith in God's providence. Well, God's going to work out what he's already predetermined. You see how it's locked in? There's no interaction really between the prayer and God. And he said, here's how you should pray effectively, acceptably. Pray reverently, pray reverently without any distracting thoughts. Well, that's a given. We should pray reverently. Pray penitently, realizing that you can't do anything without God. That's, yeah, penitently. We need to repent about our sins when we pray and confess them. Pray humbly, giving glory completely to God. It's not in ourselves. And pray confidently that we will succeed. Well, of course we'll succeed, whatever God's predestined. When you take all this together, Calvin argued, prayer accomplishes nothing. It's for the purpose of bring, bringing the supplicants, feelings, hearts, and belief in line with what God has predestined and foreknows. So prayer is kind of empty. And that's where I was and didn't know it. And then when I was in that Psalms class, yeah, we should pray humbly and repent uh, with repentance. Uh, that, that goes without, quit, without saying. But we can approach God according to the verses we read here, Philippians 4 and Hebrews, uh, Philippians 4 and Hebrews 4. We can pray uh, confidently about everything. But many pray like Calvin today and do not think their prayers may change God's mind. They don't believe that the future is open and that their prayers matter. So look, look at the, these verses, Philippians and Hebrews, or the epigraph verses in my book. Look at Philippians 4, 6 through 7. We've already read it. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is what's called a prayer cycle. It, it, it involves all aspects of prayer. Paul was a rabbi before he was an apostle. And when you go to the Psalms, you find this. The psalmist complained. They have supplicants, supplications. They have requests they make to God. And when God answers the prayer, they come back and say, thank you, God, and here's, here's what I prayed, and here's how you answered me, and I will praise you forever for this. So there's a cycle that we're to engage in. We're supposed to tell God how we feel, tell God what bothers us, and it's about everything and then when the prayers are answered, we recognize the answering of those prayers and we come back and tell him thank you. These supplications and requests involve every act, everything in our lives, and we therefore give thanks about everything. So some days we're up and some days we're down. When we're up, we complain. <laughs> when we're down, we, we complain. But we, I said that backwards. When we're down, we complain, and when we're up, we praise God. Hebrews 4.16 is the, is the linchpin for me. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been, every respect, has been tested as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with, I'm reading the NRSV, boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time, help in the time of need. ESV says confidence. The word in Greek can go either way. Either way accomplishes what we, what we need to observe. Jesus came and lived here, tempted in all points like we are. The psalmist did not have that. And so they could state how they felt to God and would ask God to, to deal with it. But Jesus, the Hebrew writer says, in verses chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, he says, don't repeat what, the writer says, don't repeat what Israel did wrong. Don't make their mistakes. 12 through 13, he explains that the word of God makes all things hidden, would expose sin, expose everything and our thoughts. Verses 14 through 16, he concludes that Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf should produce boldness. There's a contrast being made here. The psalmist told God exactly how they felt and they were timid. They didn't have Jesus. We have Jesus who understands and it forms a more intimate bond and therefore we can be confident or bold in our prayer life. And so I think the, the idea, as I just said, is that the psalmist prayed timidly compared to this. Jesus had not yet come, but when he came, he demonstrated how to live and how to deal with sin, and he understands where we are. We have assurance from Jesus' empathy that we can pray bolder prayers. Now, I use it in the book. Look at Psalm 30. We're going to try to understand what boldness or confidence is. I use this psalm twice in the book. And it was the one my professor used. But the, the point that's illustrated, you can find over and over and over and over again. In the psalms, you can find it uh, with Jonah. You can find it with Jeremiah, where they stated to God how they felt. And they didn't pray timidly. Psalm 30, it's a praise psalm, a thanksgiving psalm. He's thanking God for having answered his past prayer. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought me back, brought up my soul from Sheol, restored me to life from among those gone down into the pit. He's rehearsing. I was about to die, and I prayed to you, and you answered me, and you restored me. Verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, O you his faithful ones, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you had established me as a strong mountain, and you hid your face from, when you hid your face from me, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cried, and the, to the Lord I lifted up my supplication. So he's praising God, thanking God for having saved his life. 
And then he says, here's what I prayed. Verse 9. What profit is there in my death? They're rhetorical questions. He's asking God, what profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. Be my helper. Then in verse 11, he says, you an basically, you answer. You turn my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. We don't know many details of this prayer, but we knew that, do know that he quotes part of it in chapter, in verse 9. What can be gained in my death? Let's put this in modern perspective. If you were dying and you wanted God to live, let you live, would you pray this prayer to the, that the psalmist prayed? Taking it out of the rhetorical question, would you pray to God like this? God, you should allow me to live because if I die, there will be one less person here to praise you. Think about that. If I die, I won't be here to praise you, so you better let me live. Now, that's what the psalmist prayed who didn't have Jesus. We have Jesus, and so the Hebrew writer says we ought to be bold and confident. Brethren, I still don't know what confidence and boldness means after looking at the psalms. I still struggle with it. He didn't hold back. He didn't make excuses. He said, here's where I am, and this is what I think is good, and it'll be to your benefit. He's bargaining with God. Look, let me live, and I'll praise you. If I die, I won't be here on earth to praise you and testify to your name and so forth. We can multiply these examples, and when you get to studying the Psalms, you see them. They pop up everywhere. You see, the psalmists were real people. I think often we kind of... David wrote some of the Psalms, and Moses wrote one, and Solomon wrote one, and we sort of go through it. But these were real people just like us. Every emotion that you have, you can find it in the Psalm. I've been wanting somebody to write a, to write a, or a co-author with me or somebody else a book on Psalms and counseling, where the counselor, when he gives the person that's struggling with uh, psychological issues an assignment, tells him to go read these Psalms. It'd be a great book to use that way. They experienced the similar problems that we do. They realized they had adversity in their lives. There was a sense of resignation and acceptance. They would pray, and if God answered, they would praise him. If God, God answered them yes, they would praise him. If he answered them no, they accepted that because God is God. So, in short, they believed that if God could put pressures on them, their relationship was so strong with God and so close they could put counter pressures on God. We in this world have often been so afraid we're going to make God angry that we have to show so much respect. We create distance. We create distance from God. And we should not. He, Jesus is our elder brother. He understands so how can we take these and create a life or a culture of prayer where we change the, our faith to have the confidence to talk to God like this? 
Let me back up and say we've got to change our thinking in one way. When I went to school and I got systematic theology, we like to talk about God is omniscient, God is omnipotent, God is omnipresent. God knows everything, God is everywhere at the same time, and God's all-powerful. Okay? Except I'm not a theologian, I'm a biblist. And those terms aren't biblical. <laughs> Have you thought about that? Those terms aren't biblical. There are passages that talk about God knowing everything, and then there are passages that talk about him not knowing everything. I believe them, but that's a contradiction. Well, who says I got to, that's God. Who says I got to reconcile them? I have to believe them. So one thing we have to realize is that uh, it's difficult to pray for God to do something in our life when if we argue omniscience in the way we do, when we're, while we're praying the prayer, we believe he already knows what we will pray and the results of the prayer. That's what happened to me. And so you go, without realizing, may have never heard Calvin, you go back that way. Why am I praying? And so do you believe that God, you can change God's mind? It's difficult to believe then that we can change God's mind, but we need to believe that we can. And we often quote, as we did in the devotional, and it was good this morning, Jesus in the garden said, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, your will be done. But we take it out of context and we say, well, God's will's got to be done. Well, that's a given. God's will's going to be done. But Jesus was praying, I don't want to do this. Is there any other way we can do this? And the Hebrew writer says he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Sometimes God says, no, you need to learn some more things. Sometimes he says, yes, but... Let's not be guilty of saying God didn't answer my prayer. Maybe we didn't look for the answer. But God answered the prayer. But this thing about knowledge, notice some Old Testament passages. Genesis 22, 12. Abraham had struggled in chapter 12 through 21. In every chapter, there's something where Abraham has a faith problem. But in chapter 22, God says, offer your son Isaac, and he does. God stops him, though, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Rather intriguing. God didn't know something before. Now he does. Sounds like it. But it causes a problem for us because we're thinking in terms of facts. The relationship has changed and grown deeper. God was patient with Abraham when he struggled through his faith, but now that he's done it correctly, he and Abraham have a better relationship. So how does that work? Well, look at the other passages. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. That's not facts. That's a relationship. Joseph did not know Mary until she brought forth her firstborn son. That's not facts. That's a relationship. Genesis 18 God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do because I know how he will raise his children? Watch your new translations. 
the ESV, which I love to use, has chose there. I have chosen Abraham. That's not the Hebrew word. Why did they put it in there? Because it fits better with their theology on predestination. So God chose Abraham. That's why we need to read the Bible in all translations. The ASV, KJV, RSV, and others have the word know, which is what the Hebrew has. has. I know Abraham. I have a relationship with him. So he had a relationship there, but in 22, the relationship's deeper. And then the second thing we need to do is start asking the right questions. Ronnie will remember this. When I was in the 70s and a young preacher, the brotherhood was on fire about how the Holy Spirit dwelt in us. Did he dwell in us separate and apart from the Word, but non-miraculously? Did he dwell in us through the Word only? Did he not dwell in us at all? Ronnie, it took me a long time, but I finally realized I don't know how he dwells in me. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He knows how to do it. My job is to believe it. And sometimes we keep asking how God does stuff when it's the wrong question. How does God answer prayer? Well, various ways look for him in your life, but I don't know any specific way that he answers prayer, but he does, and I believe it. Don't ask how. It won't make you any more spiritual. It won't make you a better person. But you start believing it and looking for God's answered prayers, answering your prayers in your life, and it'll make you much deeper, much deeper relationship. So that's what we've got to do. So we must pray believing, believing that God will help us even when we don't get the answer we want. And I could go to wandering here. There's a lot of fascinating passages in the Old Testament. I want to, like David asked God, if I go, will Saul kill me? And God said, yeah. And he said, then I'm not going. What? <laughs> so you see, the, the, the future is open. And then David's running from Absalom, and he prays, let the advice of Ahithophel come to naught. And God said, no and yes. Ahithophel gave the advice to Absalom about raping J David's concubines. And Ahithophel gave the advice about pursuing him, but he did not take it. He took David's spy advice. So David prayed one prayer and got two answers. That's rather intriguing to me. Prayer is much deeper. We need to pray believing and look for God answering our prayers in our life. Well, if you're going to create a culture of prayer, this part's easy because there's so many passages and we haven't cited all of them. Pray without ceasing. That is constantly 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication, Ephesians 6.18. Our epigraph verse, in everything, by prayer and supplication, Philippians 4.6. Obviously, we should go around all day long in an attitude of prayer that we can pray anytime, anyplace, anywhere. Pray knowing that the Spirit helps our weakness, Romans 8.26. Pray, pray believing, believe that God will... Uh, Receive our prayers and answer them, Mark eleven twenty four. Pray persistently like Jesus' parable of the friend at midnight. Pray for brethren not to do wrong, but to do right. 
Pray logically, that's, that's 2 Corinthians 13, 7. Pray logically, seriously, and spiritually. Paul says, I will pray with my spirit, and I'll pray with my mind, not just empty repetitions. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. Pray for open doors that souls will be saved. All during the 50s and 60s, I grew up in the Cold War and never thought I'd go to Russia. We prayed for open doors. Please, Lord, open the doors. Open the doors. Give us an open door. When he opened them, we didn't have enough people to go through the door. It was so big. My mission work taught me something about prayer. We crisp prayers from our brethren and pray for them. Pray in every place. 1 Timothy 2.8. Pray when suffering, James, James 5.13. Pray confessing our sins one to another, 5.16. Pray for each other's well-being, John 3.2. So we can all pray everywhere, anytime, any place. Have you ever attended a prayer meeting? Some of you may have. I had never attended one until I helped organize it. I did a psalm seminar on a weekend for church. And the elders decided that they were going to meet on Sunday afternoon before evening worship and have nothing but prayer for an hour. Another congregation decided that. Another one said, well, what we'll do is uh, we'll, we'll get volunteers who want to be prayer warriors and they'll just pray all the time. They'll work up cycles and people will pray all the time for things that need praying for. However, often we're like the early church. Acts 12, 2, Peter, uh, Herod killed James, the brother of John, and imprisoned Peter. The church engaged in earnest prayer for Peter, verse 6. When Peter appeared in verses 12 through 16, they didn't believe it. Sounds like us, doesn't it? You ever prayed for something that comes about and you go, did God answer that or is that just a coincidence? Or surely that's not the answer to what I prayed for. We need to start believing. The early church fasted and prayed. It was a private matter. Fasting is. But what if a church decided to engage with volunteers in a period of time of fasting and prayer? What is accomplished by fasting and prayer? What about the dedicated place to prayer? Uh, Paul met Lydia at a place, place of prayer in Philippi. Jesus commanded to go into the inner room and pray. The Father who knows will hear and answer. Don't pray out in public for people to see how religious you are. So it's amazing to me how simple prayer is for us. Our intermediary is Jesus. We can organize group prayers, public prayers, church prayers, prayer meetings. Individuals can pray anytime, anyplace, anywhere. You can pray at red lights, stop signs, shopping in the mall, hospitals, playing golf, hunting and fishing. <laughs> Name the scenario you can pray. That's interesting. See how close we can be to God in doing that? In those prayers, we can express our true feelings, and we have confidence that regardless of how God answers, yes or no, or wait a while, that it will be for our benefit and what is best for us. We may not know it now, but we will later.
So, what if you create a prayer diary? I used to have one, had a family have one. It's nothing more, I bought them, a daily prayer book. It had a calendar. Well, you can make your own. On this date, this is my prayer. On this date also is where God answered my prayer previously on this date. I think part of the problem is we don't look for the answers to our prayers that we prayed. And I'm afraid that we sometimes think we're going to be guilty of testifying so we don't tell those. You want to build the faith of somebody? Just tell them something in your life where you believe and will take to your grave that you prayed for this and here's how God answered it. That builds us up and gives us all courage. That's not a miraculous thing. It's just edifying and teaching. And the beauty of that is every Christian has it. And it's one-on-one with God in an intimate way, just like in a family where you can say anything. When if we don't feel we can say anything, it's because of baggage that we're carrying, I believe. It's baggage that I carried. And so it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. The thing is, if you're not a Christian or you're out of faith, out of duty in Christ, that privilege is gone. Yeah, I know you hear, does the Lord hear sinners' prayers? I told somebody one time that asked that in class, well, he heard Cornelius's. But Cornelius was trying to find what he needed to do to be saved. That's a little different than some sinner out here lived a vagabond life and then gets in trouble and wants God to help him through that trouble. That's a little different. But the Christian who gets in trouble can always pray, God, I need your help now. And I, you're the one that knows, but this is what I think I need. And if there's something, something on you're not happy, you're not happy about this. Think what an intimate thing it is for a child of God to be able to do that. But a person who doesn't is not a child of God, not in a faithful relationship. They're left out in the cold. So we're going to sing an invitation song. We want you to be intimate with God. We want you to feel comfortable talking with God. But if you're out of duty or not a Christian, you need to find, come and obey your Lord in baptism and become a New Testament Christian. If you're out of duty, you need to come so that you can have this greatest of blessings in praying to God exactly how you feel. Come as we stand and sing.